the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Well, on today's program, I think you'll agree we've got a real treat in store. Joining me in studio today is the senior pastor of Lighthouse Bible Fellowship of Fremont, Dr. Craig Greatman. And Pastor, great to see you again. Welcome. It is a privilege, brother, to be here. Thank We're you. We're looking forward to getting a chance to uh, learning more about what God is doing uh, through Lighthouse Bible Fellowship in the East Bay and, uh, and also getting an opportunity to introduce our listeners to uh, your passion, your heartbeat for not just the church, but people here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Maybe take us back through, give us sort of the 30-second the elevator talk about your life experience. I understand that uh, you were a, a U.S. Army veteran. You, uh, you served for quite a number of years. Yeah. And then, like a lot of vets, had some challenges. That is true. I was, uh, I got in, I joined the Army when I was 17 and a half, signed the paperwork, and I got in at my 18th birthday. Uh, so I didn't go to jail. That wasn't a court order. It was just my my trajectory was I was I was going off the rails. So I joined the military. I was in the military for five years, uh, jumping out of airplanes, doing silly things. I did uh, get an opportunity to have my boots on the ground in some combat zones, and uh, that kind of had a, it. It struck my uh, my consciousness a little bit. I, I, I had PTSD. I had to go through some therapy there, but I, before I got therapy, I I was self-medicating and doing all kinds of things that weren't healthy for me. And um, I came, I was from California, came back to California and uh, just went off the deep end and um, was homeless on the streets of the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And uh, from there, God saw fit to get me into recovery. He sent me to HVRP, which was the Homeless Veterans Rehab Program in Menlo Park, California, where I... uh, Got clean and sober and also met someone who introduced me to Jesus Christ and my life uh, radically changed since then. That life experience, I would imagine, (laughs) has been very helpful in terms of of your ministry in the sense of being able to really relate to the challenges that many people face. I I hope so. I I, I do think that uh, one of the the challenges of uh, being a a pastor and loving Jesus is that there's a radical transformation that that I've received from meeting Jesus and being apprehended by Jesus. And so there is a little bit of a disconnect sometimes between uh, what I would call um, recovery in the world and then recovery in Jesus Christ. And so what I really do work on quite a bit when I work with people is to sort of bridge the gap between what they learn in recovery uh, and in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I try to bridge the gap between Christendom and those methods or uh, the milieus that they they get their therapy in and say, look, all those things could be good, right, and true, what you're learning, the step work you're doing, the therapy you're getting. But uh, if you Apply, applied those things with Jesus initially as your sort of guide through those principles, you will find that walking with Christ will resolve many of these issues and you can be in recovery um, and actually, actually you can recover from many of the ailments that people struggle with for a long time that they, uh, because they identify them as part of who they are rather than as uh, sort of the essence of what it means to be a sinner. Uh, and, and certainly that relationship then becomes sort of the secret sauce when it comes to, to not only recovery, but long-lasting recovery. And, and certainly many of the fine 12-step programs that are out there can do a lot in terms of changing your thought process, helping you to modify your behavior, your viewpoint, your outlook on life. Um, it can do all of that, but the one thing that it can't succeed in doing in that is changing your heart. And only that encounter with Jesus Christ, that personal relationship can affect that heart change. And of course, once we see the heart change, then all of a sudden that notion of becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus comes into into full bloom, doesn't it? Absolutely. What I, I often say what 
what we're interested in is understanding that God wants to re- you to recover the original relationship that he has intended for all of his people uh, back to the Garden of Eden. We are recovering from all of the things that we do because we are sinners who sin. We're not, we're not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. and That's our nature. And when we're apprehended by the Lord, he restores us in some capacity, in a, in a great capacity, to the original relationship he has intended for us uh, in the garden. And so I, I, when I talk about restoration and, and recovery and, and uh, redemption, I try to bring people back to what it would look like to have that relationship with God, that immediacy with God that Adam and Eve had. I believe that's what he provides us when he gives us the Holy Spirit, when he saves us. He has put us in a, in a different sort of paradigm altogether, and he's restored that relationship that he has, that he wants us to have. And that restoration leading to that relationship is, is really Long the key, time. isn't it? Yes. I mean, and I think that's, you know, now we see through a glass darkly, right? But I think the notion of as we slowly come to an understanding of Christ's work on the cross— and and the power of the word reconciliation that mm-hmm. leads to restoration that leads to relationship. Mm-hmm. Wow! You talk about the three R's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That will, that'll preach. That, that, that's life changing, <laughs> yeah. and and that really comes to the core message of now your life's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what led you to the trajectory to go into full time ministry? I know that you had gotten a degree in mm-hmm. in nursing. Uh, you. You've got a background in professional counseling, a master's degree in counseling, but taking the step to, to say, okay, Lord, here am I, uh, send me, and, and going into full-time ministry, how did that come about? I was an elder at a church uh, in Southern Oregon, and I was working at the VA in Southern Oregon. I was uh, helping veterans there, but I kept sharing the gospel. I was, I was facilitating, facilita- facilitating groups where I would share the gospel. And the VA is, is they welcome all sorts of strategies for helping people, but That's not, not, not one the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it, they were, the, the administration was kind to me. I just, it just was, just sort of became untenable. I, I couldn't just preach the gospel and say this was, this is the reason, or this is the way that you recover best. Um, and so I had to really check my options and say, do I want to uh, compromise this. I couldn't compromise the truth of the gospel and the, and the means of grace that the gospel provides for recovery. So I had to just assess that. And um, I went to my pastor, to my wife, and we had all sorts of discussions about what do I do now? I was in, I had gotten my master's, but I was then working towards uh, a seminary degree not that was different, a, the- a theological direction. And I was like, well, I, what do I do? Can, um, didn't think I, I mean, I knew I wanted to share the gospel and I shared the gospel often, but I didn't think I was really um, pastoral material. <laughs> but uh, my pastor, uh, God bless him, Don uh, Calvert, he in, in New Beginnings in Oregon, he saw that differently. My wife saw that differently. And uh, we just uh, were sent from our church in Oregon to go plant a church. I was, it was, uh, um, I mean, I, there was a lot of details behind that. I mean, little events that happened, but essentially it was I had to stop working for the secular uh, world and, and work in church to share the gospel. Uh, Pastor, I want to pivot to uh, sure. having you share a bit with our listeners about what God is doing at uh, Lighthouse Bible Fellowship. Absolutely. Um, so we are, we're, we're essentially at, at a stage where we're a replant. There are a lot of things that happened that I wasn't familiar with in terms of the Bay Area and what has gone on, what, what, what went on during COVID. I, I just wasn't a part of that. And so um, when I got here, uh, I, I was just sort of looking at the, uh, what I was look what I thought I was looking at was a sort of spiritual wasteland. It took, it's taken me a couple of years now to see it's not as dire as I thought it was. Um, at the same time, our local church was pretty decimated. Um, and so what I've discovered over time and what our body has discovered is that we are sharing with people a new, the new lighthouse and it's uh, has some great tradition and, and a great history to it uh, uh, great people built that church and and uh, started that church but it's now uh, there's a there's a whole new generation 
in this church, and we have a great poor group of people. We are starting with sort of uh, the basics of Christianity. I mean, I'm, I'm going taking people back to the doctrines of grace. I'm getting, we're getting involved in uh, creeds, and we're studying creeds and catechisms and uh, uh, the confessions right now. Uh, I, I do lean towards a. Not, I don't lean towards. I am. I am steeped in the Reformed tradition, and so uh, we are. We're actually a church that is um, a candidate church with the CREC, which is the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. So we have a our Sunday gathering is is, is a gathering where we talk about re- covenant renewal. We do that through the liturgies of communion of singing. Uh, anytime we have baptism, we'll absolutely. Uh, have who also we love having baptisms we had several last year um so we're we're providing a framework and what i'm trying to explain to our church uh, at this point is that this framework is 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 going to be built so that when this generation is gone the church will still stand and we will have passed on to the next generation the purposes for the church so that they can hold on to these principles, these historical reformed orthodox principles of the church far beyond our day. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a work right now. People are sort of a little bit dizzy. I think um, I'm, I, we're, we're taking a deep breath. We're, we're planting our flag in terms of our identity as a church. I explaining to people that we have an identity, that we are, the, we are a lighthouse that, I love that name. I don't always choose the name of the churches we go to or whatever. It's not what I'm planting. Taking that name, uh, so we're the lighthouse. We are a beacon of light for everyone in this uh, community who wants to know the light of Jesus Christ. And uh, we preach the word of God. And I I pretty much go verse by verse. We're in Hebrews right now. And then we have uh, Bible studies. uh, We have a Bible study during the week on Wednesday evenings at 6 o'clock. We eat we break bread together we have a great meal and then we sit down and right now again we're discussing uh, creeds and and confessions and catechisms and people understand getting an understanding of the richness of the historical uh, reformed tradition and 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 helping to to lay that foundation or to restore that foundation i think is is not only critically important but so refreshing particularly if you're uh, somebody's been eavesdropping on our conversation today and say wow you know i'm i'm looking for a church that preaches the word in an uncompromising fashion and a pastor who doesn't get up and quote from a passage of scripture and then go off and tell tales and stories for 30 minutes you know i, I mean i, I if you want to go to an Anthony Robbins success automation seminar, mm-hmm. uh, I don't dissuade you from doing that, but I do want to warn you, that isn't Christianity. It's Christian light. Mm-hmm. And so if you're talking about expository preaching of God's Word, where you really get in fundamentally chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to understand more about the meaning of the Scriptures and the identity of who Christ is and your identity in Christ Jesus and, and what it means to truly walk in fellowship with Him and, and to understand the 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 nature and necessity of what it means to 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 uh, you know, serve Christ, be saved by grace, mm-hmm. the importance of of Scripture alone as, as our guide, with of course the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Um, then this undoubtedly would be a church that you will want to check out. Lighthouse Bible Fellowship. They're located at two eighty Mowry Avenue in Fremont, and uh, Sunday services at ten thirty a.m. Yes, and we, and we are we are family integrated. We we do have a, a group of, of people that are that are prepared to serve the youth and the young people. Well, we're at we're we're at a place right now where we are experimenting with family integration because I think it's a great thing to have our kids running around, not not, not really running around, but we we want them to he, we want them even if it's just by osmosis to hear the word of God. I've never understood the idea of okay, send the kids off to children's church. Wait right. a minute, it, 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 let's all come and learn together. Yeah. Let and the parts sing. that they don't understand, that's okay. They'll yeah. get off the milk eventually. Yeah, yeah. So that that's our particular philosophy. Uh, it, I, I don't mind at all hearing a crying baby. We do have a cry room and a nursery and all those sorts of things. That we, we have we have a beautiful facility, and we have a, a facility filled with great people, warm people, kind people. It's been a blessing for me and my family to be here. So I, I'm excited. I want to invite people to come and join us and see what we're about, understanding that uh, we're, we'll be really honest, we're, we're on an uphill climb. We are building something. And so if, if you're a person who understands that uh, if you're a mature believer, 
please come. We we want mature believers. We, I just don't want to shuffle the deck. I don't want people to leave another church. But if they someone is looking for a church, yeah, absolutely come check us out. Yeah, and undoubtedly you've heard the heartbeat of uh, Pastor Greatman today. Uh, I want to invite you to check him out online at Think of the Church Letters Lighthouse Bible Fellowship as lbfchurch.org. That's lbfchurch.org. Again, meeting Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 280 Mowry Avenue in the city of Fremont. Again, on the web at lbfchurch.org. Our thanks to Dr. Craig Grapeman, pastor, for being with us today. It's been a delight to get a chance to visit with you. Well, thank you. It's, again, it's a privilege, Craig. I'm, I'm very, very grateful, and I'm looking forward to what God has in store. Uh, if you are able, please remain standing as we Read God's Word together, beginning in chapter 8 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 13, which is indeed the entire chapter. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ mediates, uh, excuse me, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on the heart, their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, our Lord, our King, our great high priest, who is like no other, deserving deserving of all our praises, yet adored by us so insufficiently, so modestly, far too often. May you cause us to revel in your midst. Rejoice in your grace. Be renewed by your holy word and be united in the bonds of peace here in your local church, Lighthouse Bible Fellowship, as well as globally with all the saints who gather in spirit and in truth on this Lord's day, so that your name is glorified in all the earth for all the world to see how it is, Lord Jesus, that we know you are God. May, our great, may your great mercies transform us, your wisdom inform us, may your presence so undo us that we might comprehend your power being perfected in our weaknesses. May you cause us to run and not grow weary, walk and not grow faint. Build us up into your strength for your purposes, to make known to us your covenant of grace, so that we might soar on wings like eagles who see the world and this age for what it is. And understand that we are here for such a time as this to proclaim your majesty, your goodness, your greatness and glory to those who are lost and those who are hurting and those who are on the brink of eternal death so that your kingdom becomes home to many more people in this world. 
And Lord, may the words of my own mouth and the meditations of my own heart be acceptable to you, Papa, Abba, Father, as you are my rock and my redeemer now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. So, as we look at the word of the Lord, as we turn our attention to his word from the author of the Hebrew, the letter to the Hebrews, I want to remind you that so far in the letter, the author has labored to expound upon all the qualifications of Jesus the Christ. He's labored to demonstrate the sufficiency and propriety of his worthiness. He wants us to know that he is worthy of being worshipped. Jesus is worthy of being praised and obeyed. He has made arguments for the supremacy of Christ over and over again. And over and above every other possible person or object of glory that the Jewish people at the time of this letter might favor. In his comparisons, in the author's comparisons... He has made it clear to the Hebrews that Jesus is superior to angels, to prophets, to priests, to the law, and to the Mosaic Covenant, and to the priesthood. And he has done this to ensure that these first century Hebrew Christians understood that Jesus is the Christ. He is more abundantly qualified to serve in his appointed role as the great high priest than anyone ever could be. And so as we move into chapter 8, we understand now who Jesus is, what he has done, and why he is qualified. We're reminded, at the end of chapter 7, we were reminded of, of all his qualifications and why they matter. Remember, the Bible says that Jesus is holy, he is innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The Hebrews then, as well as the church now and forever, are to understand the sufficiency of Christ. We're to understand his life, his completed work on the cross, and his resurrection all rightly substantiate a new and better covenant that renders the Mosaic covenant null and void. The old covenant could only be maintained and satisfied by perfect obedience in every way, by every participant in the covenant. And what we studied thus far makes it abundantly clear to them and to us our abject failure. We cannot keep that covenant. Both the law and the people who tried to keep it were incapable of the results that God has intended for his elect all along, that being an eternal relationship with him. Therefore, God, in his grace, through his Holy Spirit, has given us his word to not only explain to us that the law's inability, uh, explain to us the law's inability to save, while he has done that, he simultaneously, the author is, showing us the efficacy to convict us in the law. So the law has done the thing it's supposed to do and will continue to do this. The law, remember, is a guide for us to be reminded of how poorly we love Jesus and how poorly we obey. And so Jesus came and he proclaims a new covenant. It's exclusive. It's for us. And now in hoping that we understand the supremacy of Christ his nature and his character that qualify him alone to, con- to constitute a new covenant, we turn to chapter 8, and chapter 8 begins to describe for us what Jesus is now doing. He's able to do it. He's authorized to do it. And now what is he doing? And this is a really big deal for us. Why is this a big deal for us? Because it strips away any sort of idea that the common Christian has regarding our relationship with him. All too often, we strip away or we ignore the holiness of God and his place as mediator and high priest. And so 
What does a high priest do? Chapter 8 is going to show us this. What is Christ's ministry? What exactly does he do at the right hand of the throne of God? How does he right now administer a better covenant to us? What's Jesus doing up there? The majesty of heaven. Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us something very important from the very beginning. And so we're going to probably grind through this first sentence for a little while. There's a lot to explain just in the first sentence. So now, the point, the reason the author has said all that he said thus far, the point, and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That the author frames it this way, particularly in the Greek, the point, you know, the point is we, we, we hear this all the time, just in our everyday vernacular, we talk a lot, we say a lot of things, and then we just really want to hone in on why we're blabbering, right? So the point, the word, the kephali, the word for point in this particular sentence in Greek is the word head. And so it's a metaphor. It's not just the point, it's the main point, it's the most important point. And so as we see that, as we read that, we need to pay attention. We need to if we have a Bible, highlight this part of our Bible. Reread this part of our Bible. Understand what the author is trying to say. So we're paying attention, yeah? We are ready. We want to get this point. We should be eager at the edge of our seat. What is it? It doesn't seem, I mean, it seems repetitive, maybe a little bit redundant so far. But we're going to go through this very slowly. Because the point is, we have such a high priest. So there's all kinds of reasons to think about Jesus. There's all sorts of reasons to go to church. There are all sorts of reasons to change the things that we do and the way that we worship. None of the things that we are doing are the, re- the reasons that I have for doing them are more important than this part of Scripture, actually. We have something. You and I and the rest of the body of Christ that is in Christ has something. Who is the we? Is it the author and just the people reading the letter? It's every single person who says they're a Christian. Every single person who says they are saved. So this binds us all. It puts us all in communion with one another. It is something that we need to remind ourselves and one another of when we start talking as if we are paupers in a land of riches. Because we have something incredible. You have it. I have it. The poorest among us, the most doltish among us the wisest and richest among us. This is what we have that we share and we need to understand it. We, the elect, we who are predestined, we who are earnest to have full assurance of the hope that he has given us until the very end. These are all things that the author has said thus far about who the we is. We who are striving to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. We who are recipients of the new covenant, we who aren't Christ, we have. We have. Just sit in this for a minute. We might not have. It's not we could have. It's not we will someday have. It's not... If we do X, Y, or Z, we could possibly have this. There is no equivocation in this statement. And this is massive for all of us. We have something. We have it. 
The word have here, it brings us into a present, but also imperfect tense in the Greek, which allows us to know that we have it for the rest of our lives. From now through eternity, we have something. This thing that we have makes us very special to God and to the world. We have something. Has anybody ever bought a lottery ticket? It's okay. I won't. <laughs> you have a ticket. Everybody knows what, I mean, some people know anyway. Someone could tell you you have a winning ticket. Someone could tell you how the lottery works. Someone could tell you the, all the ways, the store to buy your ticket at. You could walk around having a ticket. And you could have hope that the ticket might be the winner. But the day they announce the Powerball numbers, you wad it up in a ball and you toss it. Because you don't have a winning ticket. You just had a ticket. We have something much better than a vague hope, than a vague notion, than a than a possibility if we do the right thing. And the reason I want to just labor this point for you is because there are a lot of religions in the world. There are a lot of people who practice all sorts of religious liturgy. There are all sorts of places where people come to worship a God that they want to worship. If you talk to most of those people, I've talked to people from various religions, particularly Muslims, because I'm very curious about this for people who are Muslim, because they're very devoted, they're very devout people, the ones who practice seriously. And I just, I ask them, do you have eternal security? Do you understand that Allah is going to ensure that you are in heaven with him eternally? And there's always this vague sort of excuse and possibility, and yeah, he's good, but never this deep-seated assurance that they have eternal life. Christians, like no other people in the entire world, we know because we have, we have Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Right now, you are assured, if you are in Christ, you have Christ. You have every one of his promises. You are in his covenant. You have covenant privileges. You have everything that comes with being a citizen of God's eternal kingdom, even right now. That is a massive hope. That is an incredible, undoing hope, a radical hope. That is something we ought to be able to appreciate even right now. And so as we restructure some things, even as we, I talk to you about some of the things that we're doing in the service, some of the reasoning that I have, some of the reasoning that the reformers had and the, the early church had for gathering together in communion and honoring the covenant of God, it is because when we come here, everything that we do is to orient ourselves to the God that we have, not to the thoughts that we have about our busy week, not to the thoughts that we have about the things that are hurting us or breaking us apart. We're human. Those things are going to happen. But can we for 90 minutes or so every week come together and practice by doing some things that remind us that we are in the presence of God? Can we practice that? Can we remember that? Do we actually enjoy that with everything that we do and say, everything that we pray, every time we praise the Lord, every time we sing a song, every time we take communion, every time we greet each other, are we understanding what we have and who we we have? Are we doing this with the intentionality of having something? Are we treating this communion and this covenant as if it is ours, as if you have it, as if we're going to be together forever? We're family, like it or not. We have relatives, we have blessings, we have promises. We have assurance, and we have all of those things, and we're going to see again why, because from chapter 8 through chapter 10, he just repeats what Jesus is doing for us all the time, and it's incredible. 
But we have all of these things. You are not the, the amalgamation of your days and your earnings and your bank account up to this point in time. All those earthly things that you have. I have a motorcycle. I ride a motorcycle. I have a, a, a motorcycle that makes me a biker. But that is so, like, not even close. It doesn't rank in terms of me having a savior, having sonship with God. I have a wife. I have children. I love them. They are mine. God has brought us together. I am theirs. They have a papa. They have a husband. Those are good and great things. They are secondary at best, at best secondary to having a God and not just any God, having the God of the universe, the creator that has knitted them, that has known them since the beginning of time. You have God. You have a place in heaven. You have an intercessor. You have the love of the king. Again, there's no equivocation there. And I just, again, by way of illustration, recently they talk, I, I look at these things sometimes. There's a, they, they make lists regularly. That Forbes makes lists of the wealthiest people in the world. And once again, right now, Elon Musk is at the top of this list and he is worth $226.6 billion. Now, and I've listened to Elon talk quite a bit. I've listened to people interview him and stuff. He talks about, you know, people are always asking about his wealth. And certainly this guy has a lot of money, but as of January, He's worth $226.6 billion. In November 2023, three months ago, he was worth $245.6 billion. Now, Elon Musk did not spend $39 billion in three months. That valuation that gives him his professed wealth is simply a valuation. It's, it's the stock market and banks and the financial industry telling him your companies that you've started, that you're the president of or CEO of, they're worth this much money. But he doesn't have $226 billion. He doesn't have that. We think about riches. We think about the world in the, in the ways and terms that the world gives us. And we look at our Christianity in a very similar way. We don't think we mean to. I don't think we process it like this often. But we don't just have binary numbers, ones and zeros, in a bank account somewhere, like saved for later, or if it's possible in it state, it keeps its value. We hope that Jesus keeps his value. That's not how we have this covenant that we have. This is not how we have this God that we have. Do you understand this parallel? He's not a possibility for us. He's not a hope for us that is blind, that is not founded on anything. We just read and we just spent months understanding what, the, what we have is founded upon. It's founded upon Jesus. He is the guarantor of the promise. He is the keeper of the covenant. We have it. So it behooves us to understand what exactly we have. Amen? We don't have just fire insurance. We don't have a distant hope that someday we might get into heaven. If all things go well, and we said enough prayers and we were really honest with God and it's all dependent upon us receiving the gift, whatever. It's, not, it's never dependent on us receiving the gift. This is the difference between us and many like Baptists or Anabaptist traditions. People will tell you all the time, but you have to receive it. You can be given faith, but you have to receive it. That immediately puts us in a position where we have to do something for our faith. We're given the faith. We're given salvation. When we say we receive it, that is not a mechanism for us actually receiving it eternally. That is a mechanism of our conscience minds or our souls receiving, understanding what we have. In other words, we have it. Sometimes we just don't know what that means. We don't know exactly what we've received. So us saying that, that we receive it, that we make a conscious 
confession or profession of our safe of our faith is simply us acknowledging and when we acknowledge it psychologically soulfully however you want to put that when we acknowledge it things begin to happen in terms of our relationship with God where we start uncovering or unpacking all of the wonderful things that come with being a Christian and being God's kid We start to see more and more what God has actually given us because we're intentional about receiving it. It's there. Our salvation is always there if we've been given it. Don't you want to know the degree to which you have God? Don't you want to put in more? Everything we do at church, everything we do in our prayer time, every time we go and we, we do things to be in conscious contact with God, we see more. That's for our benefit. God's not saying, okay, now you get more. He's saying, look at what I've already given you. And you're actually making an intentional effort to see what he has given you. There's a massive difference in that. You have a gift under a Christmas tree. You don't open it. It's still your gift. It's still sitting there with your name on it. You just didn't unwrap it. But it's yours. And in Christ, we have the gift. We have the relationship. We have the covenant. We just have to do more sometimes to dig into, to obey more, to see all of the things, all of the terms of our covenant that come true for us that really bless us. Again, that's why when we come to church, I want us to do more things to be intentional, to receive what God has for us, to proclaim his name in broader and more liturgical ways so that we understand and we're we're telling ourselves, we're telling one another, look at this great God Look what he's given us. We have this. Okay. So we have. We have something. We have a high priest who has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God on high or majesty in heaven. Okay. That sounds pretty far away. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, first of all, I want you to recognize that this is true, right? I, hopefully most of you believe it, but I just want you to be reminded, Mark sixteen nineteen. so that when the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, he, he is there. He has done this. But then look at John 6, 62. This is going to help us a little bit. I, I was going to enlighten us a little bit. Through all the things that Jesus is talking about, He then says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending, this is a rhetorical question, to where he was before? This is not a new thing for Jesus. His life is not linear like we think it's linear. Okay, He's eternal. He always has been eternal. And so when he ascended back into heaven, he's just going to the place where he's always supposed to be, where he has been. He's going back to the things that he is called to do. He's going back to fulfill his office as high priest. And so when we look at all of the things that happened in the Old Testament, we bring that forward and we look at all the things that happened in the New Testament and beyond. Where is Jesus Where has Jesus been? And if he has been there before, particularly in the Old Testament, this is what's important about understanding the covenant. When Jesus was there before in in the Old Covenant, Jesus was at the right hand of the throne of God, majesty on high. He was there. And as he was there, the covenant people practiced certain things to honor God. They had a representative high priest here on earth, but it reminded them of the things that they're supposed to do to honor God who is, and and Jesus who is at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the ceremonial things that they do, the celebratory things that they do, the sacrificial things that they do to honor God in the Old Testament, they do something for us in terms of doing the same thing. They don't make it legal for us to receive what God has. They just remind us of where God is and what we're supposed to do, knowing that God is in heaven, majesty on high. What do we do with that God? How do we engage that God? Now, the Jews did it in these special times, special appointed uh, ceremonies, special appointed temples, special appointed tabernacle, special built ark, on, on and on. They had these moments where they had to do that all throughout the Old Testament. We... 
now have this same God in the same place doing the same thing. We ought to be doing these things and can be doing these things to acknowledge God all the time. So when, in other words, when they made sacrifices, right? Jesus has made the sacrifice. What did the sacrifice do for the people of Israel? It it reminded them of their sin. They were forgiven of their sin. And then they could have some sense of communion with God. We now, Jesus has already done all that. So now when we come to church, when we acknowledge that we're in the presence of God, I hate to do it. I hate to ask you this. Has anybody ever been to jail? Again, we're, we're going to have confession later. It's okay. So if, you, if, if you've ever been to jail or prison, it's, I do not recommend it. Okay. <laughs> we don't want to go there. But if you're on the inside and you get a visitor, there's this glass and there is nothing as horrible, demeaning, and humbling as meeting your visitor at the glass and you pick up a phone and you're usually in an orange jumpsuit or gray jumpsuit or some kind of clothes that make you look awful. And you pick up the phone and you look at somebody and you're talking to them through the glass and your heart's breaking. You feel awful and you're just pining. Oh man, I I don't want to be here. I want to be on the other side of that glass to have this conversation face to face, to hold that person or to be hugged by that person or to be acknowledged by that person face to face without any barrier, without any impediments. The Jewish people in Israel were on that side of the glass talking to God. Think about that for a second. We, when we're Christians that don't understand what we have, we're on the wrong side of the glass. Because of what Jesus has done, he's broken the glass, he's done away with the phone, and we now have immediate access to the Father. We have immediate access to his forgiveness, to his love, to his grace. Nothing comes before us that tells us that we should be ashamed to enter in to the presence of God. Nothing is before us that God is saying, get out of my face. I'm ashamed of you. I don't want to see you here. I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad you've come. I'm glad you understand how broken you are and how much you need me. And we can do this because we have a great high priest. Do you understand the difference how, how so many of us, even in our prayer closets, we act as if God is just ethereal, like somewhere out there. What we need to do more of usually is understand what it looks like from the word of God to be in the presence of God instead of just imagine what it might be like. We get to know what it's like from reading his word. So Jesus has been doing this all along. He's there at the right hand of God. And so we have Jesus, we have a great high priest, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and he's ministering in the holy places, and he is in the true tent that the Lord set up. Now, just think about how this influences our worship. Even now, even in this moment, how does this influence and change our focus? Why would we want to be so intentional intentional about how we worship and the songs that we sing and the ways in which we come into the presence of God? I want you to, I'm going to take a look at some scripture with you and we're going to see something here. Many of you, I'm sure, have read Revelation, but this is from Revelation 4. I want you to just hear this. This is tremendous. At once, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne, the right hand, the majesty in heaven. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, there, there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The eyes, the presence of God, the understanding who has become before us and who's going to come after us. This is a really big idea. He sees everything and that he sees everything. When we look at him, we're consumed. We're, We're to be looking, always looking at him. All eyes focused on him at the throne. That's what's available to us. That's what we have. We have the ability now because of what Jesus has done and what he is doing as our high priest. Look upon God. Can you imagine, do you ever sit and imagine coming to the throne room and being undone by the presence of God? Are you undone by imagining even this, this sort of reality? This is our reality, though we can't see all of this at one time. Excuse me. I'm going too far, sorry. As we look, and there are several places in Scripture where we see this sort of imagery of being in the presence of God and understanding what we have and why he has given it to us. He has given it to us. He's given us this immediacy, though, it's, though we are burdened by the temporal. He has given us an understanding that we are always in his presence. He is always willing and desirous to receive your worship, the worship he is due. And you're never going to get tired of worshiping him in eternity. That's going to be part and parcel of your existence for the rest of your life. I say that to you because as we do things that are intentionally more worshipful together here, if there are things that perturb you or things that seem too religious, you're not going to like it in heaven. That's crazy, right? That's what our experience is going to be in heaven. Come to the throne room, the right hand of majesty on high, where Jesus is and where he says, you get to come in here. You get to come in here, all cleaned up, sins as far away as the east is from the west, cleaned white as snow, all your sins washed away. Come look at Papa. Look at his glory. Behold, it is God. We look out in the world, we look into people's eyes, we think about our lives. And if we have a God consciousness that we intentionally engage with, we more and increasingly see God in his creation, like we're explained in Romans. We see God and his spirit working in one another. Why do we do that? Because we have God and we want to see God in, at, at work, in our day-to-day, in the ways he's created this beautiful world, in the ways that he's knit his body together, even the most lowly and wayward among us. Let's look for God. Let's see the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Let's invite one another to praise him, to worship him together, even when we're on our worst day. We have, you have, you have, but you don't ask. You have, but you don't obey. You have, but...
but you've gotten lazy. I don't know. You have, but you've been really busy. You have. We have, and we have together, we have corporately, and especially corporately when we come together. This reality that we have God together comes to a special kind of fruition in the body of Christ when we come together to celebrate and worship God, all eyes on him through the singing of songs, through the taking of communion, for the praying, through the word of God being preached. God is present here. And not because I'm a good preacher, not because Julian is such a great guitar player, not because, not because you guys are so nice, but because Jesus died and rose again so that you could have so much security, so much assurance, so much joy, so much peace, so much of what God is imparting to you if only, not only you want to have it, but you understand you already have it. If, so look into your own heart. Do some self-analysis, but don't stay there too long. Look in God's word. See how God presents himself. And understand that these radical visual moments that we have yet to see, they're still ours. You are in the throne room because Jesus brings you there. He gives you access to your creator. To ask of anything you want that's going to glorify him. Ask. Talk to him. Thank him. Acknowledge him. You have him. You don't need to cower. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to wonder if it's okay right now. You need to ask someone else to do it for you. We, we pr- I'll be glad to pray for you. But guess what? Your prayers are just as good as mine. You have them too. He likes your mur- murmurings and babblings just as much as he likes mine. This is tremendous. This is tremendous freedom. Tremendous joy and gives us tremendous purpose as we gather together every week to acknowledge together who and what we have. We got through the first few words, right? We're going to get a lot more, but but this is the point. You have and we have. So with that... If you don't have, or if you don't know that you have, and if the Holy Spirit is working in you, or if you know other people who don't have, come, ask, seek, knock. Allow God to be God in your life. I don't know what's missing for you. I don't know what you're pining for. I don't know what you're striving for. I don't know what you're after. I don't know what success looks like for you. I don't know what peace looks like for you. I don't know. But if you're not seeking all of those things through Jesus Christ, you're missing out. And he can be yours. Dr. Craig Greatman, Senior Pastor of Lighthouse Bible Fellowship of Fremont. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.